0: Turn with me in your Bible to Romans chapter 10. We kind of left off in the middle of a place last week and I really felt a, a little uncomfortable because where we left off, if you could leave here and just begin to question things you don't need to question and begin to doubt some things you don't need to doubt. On the other hand, we do need to get into it and understand it. Just very quickly, what we're talking about is we have been spending really this whole year and as I looked into it, we began almost last year at this time to look at why we're here. And that we're here, the Bible tells us, for one purpose and one purpose only. The reason this church exists and everything that we do is part of that purpose. The reason you exist, the reason God's left you here once He saved you is for one purpose and one purpose only. And we all have different aspects of that, different parts to play in it, but it all boils down to one purpose. And that's in Mark chapter 16. We are to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. Matthew then picks up in Matthew 28 and says that, that Jesus, that all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me, you therefore go forth and make disciples of every nation. And so we're here to take the gospel and to bring it forth into the world to preach and proclaim the gospel. And so we spent some time looking at the gospel and what does that mean. And the word gospel means good news and we spent time looking at what that good news is and that it, it must be so good in order for us to really know that we've seen that good news, it has to move us somehow. good news impacts us good news is something we want to tell other people we automatically want to share with other people and if we're reticent or, or hesitant about sharing the gospel then maybe we haven't really seen why it's good news to us and so we looked at that and we're not going to go back over that again and now what we've been looking at is this part where we're commanded to preach the gospel and we're looking at what that mean, word means to preach because there are a number of aspects to it. And, of course, when we hear the word preach, we almost always, most of us are going to immediately think of somebody standing in a pulpit, thumping the pulpit, pointing their fingers, spitting, or standing on a street corner with placards that say, you know, the world is coming to an end, uh, or, or something along those lines. Something that, for most of us, we can distinguish ourselves from and say, well, I'm not a preacher, because preacher in our parlance, in our culture, tends to mean a professional speaker, in a minister who has a collar on, or, or in some way a professional minister, so therefore, well, I'm not a preacher, so therefore I can't go preach the gospel. But the word preach means something very different. The word preach literally means to... To, to de- declare, and we're going to look at that a, a little bit more as we're going into that. But that's what we're looking at right now. And Romans chapter 10 is the classic explanation of this process. Because if we're going to be part of preaching this or touching people's lives with the gospel, we need to understand that there's a process by which this works. Because otherwise, we just go do things. We either hand out tracts or we just share something with people. And if we don't understand the process, because there's a very definite process, and there's a part of this process that God has to play, and there's a part of this process that we have to play. And you've heard me say before, because it really is so simple, we cannot do God's part. And that's why a lot of people struggle. They said, you know, I can't, I'm trying to get my family saved. Well, you can't get anybody saved. You couldn't get yourself saved. That part's God's part. But there's a part we have to play, so we cannot do God's part. We're not capable of it, and God will not do our part. In fact, He can't. Do our part, and we'll see that as we get into this a little further. So Romans 10 tells us what these parts are, and we looked last week in Romans 10, the beginning of it, because Paul talks about Israel, and he said Israel has a zeal for God, a passion for God, but they don't have the knowledge of how to receive it. And we, took to, we looked at the fact that zeal and passion and desire is wonderful, but it requires knowledge to submit to the way it works because it says they refused having a to, trying to establish a righteousness of their own they would not submit to the righteousness of God and what we saw that was talking about was that, that there's a method of righteousness and what that word means is making ourselves as right as God in order to be in God's presence in order to be in God's kingdom in order to be in God's family The Bible is very clear, you have to be as holy and righteous as He is. Well, there's the problem, because He is absolutely holy, He is absolutely righteous, He has never had one impure thought in His existence, He's never done one impure thing, everything God does is absolutely, perfectly holy. Well, we're in trouble then, because there's no way we can measure up to that. And so, God's provided two methods of doing that, one of which will never work, and that was the law. And the other is grace. The law is when you do it by Uber's righteous, the same way God's righteous, and the same way Jesus is the only man that ever lived on this earth that perfectly obeyed the law, that was righteous the way God is righteous, and that is Jesus Christ. And nobody else has ever done it before, and nobody else will ever do it on their own since then, because God wants to establish in our own understanding you can't do it yourself. Because if you could do it yourself, you're going to take credit for doing it yourself. And then you're going to violate the law because you're going to be proud. So God gave the law, never gave the law expecting anybody was going to fulfill it. He gave the law to show, man, you can't do it on your own. If you think you can do it on your own, here, go at it, hotshot. This is what it requires, and it's impossible. And I used the example last, year, last week of, of when I was in high school and I took a tri- class trip to Washington, and, and a bunch of us guys decided we were going to go up all the steps to the top of the Washington Monument. I did look it up later. It's about 890, I think 890 steps to the top of the Washington Monument and it's 550-some feet high. And so, you know, I don't remember whether all of us made it up there, but we did it because we were trying to prove because we were 16-year-old males. We were going to prove what we can do and impress those girls who were a lot smarter than we are because they discovered there was another method of getting to the top and that was the elevator. And the elevator is something somebody else designed, somebody else paid for, somebody else built, and somebody else operated. And all they could do, and all they needed to do, was trust it enough to get in it and allow it to take them to the top. And to me, that's a great example of what grace is. But grace is the only other way to get to the top or to get into heaven. And that's to receive something God designed, God paid for. God carried out and God opens the door for you to enter into and all you need to do is trust him enough and trust the word enough to step into God's elevator which is Jesus Christ and allow him to use his effort to his payment to bring you to the top but because of the pride of our flesh we've all tried to go up some of the steps and you may have gotten to step 100 you may have gotten to step 300 but I've got news for you the top of this monument, heaven, is more than 897 steps. It is infinity. And somewhere along the line you broke down, somewhere along the line you ran out of gas, somewhere along the line you stripped and fell so God could bring you back down and have you take the elevator. And so grace is the other method of righteousness, the only one God designed to work. But the word is very interesting because it said that Israel refused to submit to it. An interesting word. Because to submit to something means that you surrender, you put yourself under it. Well, how is it submitting to something that's free, that's easy? Because you have to put your pride aside. You can't have some law and some grace. You can't stand before God and say, Lord, I'm here because 98% of it was your grace, but I contribute too. It's all or nothing. It's either all grace or it's all law. And that's where we have to submit our pride and humble ourselves, which is in part why Jesus said, in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must come as a child, not a five, 10 year old, but as a two or three year old, because they know they're dependent. A child is dependent, they know they need you. And they don't try to do it on their own until they get to those twos. And that's where they start, quote unquote, growing up. And in God's eyes, we're all in our terrible twos. I'm going to do it myself. Amen? So that's what we looked at last time. And then we began to go down into, into the explanation of it here and the that uh, the Paul walks us through here. And we talked about this. We're going to pick up here in verse 8. Because in verse 8, Paul talks about this process. And this is what grace is like. And, and he'll, he'll talk in here about faith, that we receive it by faith. But understand this. Salvation works simply this way. From God's side, it's a gift of grace. Grace is giving you something you didn't deserve and not giving you something you do deserve. So God's side is He, he gives to us right, His own righteousness through Jesus Christ. But as with everything with God, it has to be received by faith. So it's God's side it's given as an act of grace. But that grace can only be received from our side by faith because you can't see what God's done. And Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. You didn't see Jesus go on the cross. You didn't see God take your sins and put them on that cross and judge them. You didn't see God hand you His righteousness. You have to believe it by faith because the Word of God says so. So it's received by faith. So as we look at these scriptures and we talk about faith speaks thus way, it's the faith that believes to receive. And this is the big struggle we have, is to learn how to believe to receive something. But it starts with our very salvation. So in verse 8... Paul says, but what does the word say? This is the, this is the righteousness by faith. This is the second method. This is the elevator. How does it talk? What's his attitude? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. What he's saying there is, because the verses before says, it doesn't say you've got to go up to heaven and bring Christ down again. It doesn't say you've got to go down into hell and bring, raise him from the dead again. That's already been done. God's done his part. What faith does is, what does faith say? The word word of your salvation is near you. It's so near you, it's in your mouth and it's in your heart. In other words, when you got saved, God didn't have to go do anything else. He was just waiting on you. In fact, Ephesians and several other places, Ephesians 1 says that God ordained your salvation before the foundation of the earth. In God's heart and mind, He sacrificed His Son for you before you were ever thought of by anybody except by God. So in God's side, God's side of this is already done. There's nothing left for Him to do. It's all up to us. Therefore, none of it, no one's going to ever be able to stand before God and say, this wasn't fair. This wasn't fair that I'm ending up going to hell. I love what Billy Graham said one day when he was asked on some national interview program. And he said, it's so simple. He said, well, he asked him, well, what about, if this is true, what you're saying the gospel says, what about all the people in China and places that have never heard the gospel? Is is God fair to to send them to hell? Billy's answer was so simple. He says, I don't know how to answer that. All I know is this, is when each one of us stands before God and gets the judgment, we're going to know he's Right? we're going to know He's right. It's near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. So all is necessary to complete this transaction of God transmitting His righteousness to you, washing away your sins and receiving you into His family and into His kingdom, all that's left is for you to de- believe something in your heart and to declare something with your mouth. That's what this is talking about. And that is the word of faith which we preach. And this is what we were looking at last time. Verse 9. For if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's an absolute promise from God. Verse 10. For with a heart one believes unto righteousness, and with a mouth confession is made unto salvation. So we started last week talking about the first part of it, which is what you have to believe in your heart. And we saw that what he says in, back in verse 9 is what you have to believe in your heart is that God has raised Christ from the dead. And I remember asking before last week, asking the Lord, why, why that particular thing? Why not believe in my heart that, Christ is, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, as Peter believed? And why not believe in the virgin birth? Why not, why not include all those other things? Why limit it to, just hone down on, believe that God raised Him from the dead? And then I began to see it. Because every other of those aspects is wrapped up in God raised Him from the dead. Because in order for God to raise him from the dead, he has to be the Son of God. Nobody else would raised from the dead except unless like Lazarus or Jesus did something special. But his being raised from the dead seals who he is. That he's the Christ, the Son of the living God. Being raised from the dead completes the transaction of not only the payment for our sins, but victory over death. That's why Paul could write in 1 Corinthians 15, Oh death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? And We talked about that before. For a Christian, somebody that's in Christ, you've already died the only death you're going to die. Your old man died and the new man's been born in you. The only thing that's going to die is this physical body. And it's no more painful, it's no more difficult than that. It's shedding this earthly body that has held you back, given you all the trouble, and being free in your spirit, man, and in your soul. To a Christian, there's no pain and sting and death. But to someone that's not in Christ, it's only the beginning of pain and sting and death. Because to someone that dies without Christ, I believe with all my heart, because I've read reports of this, I believe there's scripture to support it, that demons come up out of hell to drag your soul down, screaming and kicking, and by then it's too late. Begin to drag your soul down into hell, screaming and kicking to gnashing of teeth where, where you're, and I don't want to dwell on this now where, where, where they, try to, they, they bite at your body they can try to consume your body and it's not as if they can eat it up because it can't. it's eternal now it doesn't die it just continues to ache in pain if you ever got a glimpse of hell you would run so far from it and you would want everybody you know to be safe from that and the reason we're not, not more passionate about evangelism is because we don't understand what we've been saved from we don't understand, and forever. Not just six weeks, two weeks, ten weeks, a month, or three years, forever. And so believing in our heart that God raised Him from the dead includes all of that. It means that it is he's the Son of God. It means the payment for our sin is done. And with a heart we must believe. We talk, this is where we ended up last time. Not with the mind. It's possible to mentally agree with these things and not have any change take place in our heart. The Bible is very clear that what we believe to be effective we must believe with our heart. That is your will and that is your, 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 the center of your soul. It's a choice you make. To be saved is a choice you make of your will. It's an act of your will to receive Christ as your Savior. There may be emotions connected with it. There may not be emotions connected with it. But it's a commitment and an act of your will. And when that's done out of your will, it, it will produce changes. And so the evidence that someone saved, the evidence that this is not just something in our mind, is a change begins to take place. James 2 talks about that. He talks about, you know, faith without works is dead, it's useless. And so that means faith without some corresponding action. Without, he said it's not enough to just say, well, I believe in God. Jesus said even the demons believe in God, and they shudder, which puts them ahead of a lot of Christians. They fear God. They believe He exists. So believing He exists is, is that enough. It's, it's a change down in our heart. Something's taken place down inside of me, and it, in some people it produces a change faster than others. But there ought to be some change in your life. There ought to be some change. With, you know, before I was saved, I was a very, I was a very negative person. I saw the, the half-empty glass, not the half-full glass. I was not optimistic about life. I was not hopeful about life. And it was so long ago, I don't remember a whole lot of that. All I remember is once I got saved, that all turned around. Suddenly there was hope in me. I shared the story with you. I was in, I was in love with everything and everybody I could see. Now that kind of toned down a little bit. But, but there was a change. Something happened inside of me. I knew it. I knew it. And nobody could talk me out of that. There ought to be some fruit beginning to come out of you somewhere. And if you've been saved for 30 years and you're still talking, acting, and thinking like you did 30 years ago, you may need to go back and examine your heart. Not afraid, but just examine your heart. You'd rather do that now than when it's too late. So it's possible to be in church, it's possible to agree with the Word of God, it's possible to agree with everything that's preached and never have it impact your heart. If you believe in your heart, if you believe in your heart. Today we're going to look at the other side of this. Well, I'm going to go on a little bit bit about that. What does it mean to believe? And this is where our English fails, because our our English words can have a tremendously broad spectrum of meaning, and one of the greatest examples of that is the word love. Because in our English language, you can apply love to peanut butter, you can apply love to the patriots, you can apply love to your church, and you can apply love to your spouse. You better not mean the same thing. You better not love peanut butter as much as you love your spouse. Or the patriots. And you better not love your spouse the way you love peanut butter. So that word has a broad spectrum of meaning that's very significant to know the difference. Greek words were broken down into like, for instance, love had five Greek words, predominant Greek words, that had very specific meanings. But the word believe in English... Believe can mean everything from, "eh, yeah, I believe that, to a real total confidence in. And this word in Greek means a total confidence in, a stepping out on. Remember the story where Jesus tells his disciples to go to the other side and they get out in the middle of the lake and there's a storm and Jesus comes walking to them on the water and in Matthew's account, Peter says, Lord, if that's you, bid me to come. And what does Jesus say? He says, Come. And what Peter says, it says he got down, when he got down out of the boat, he walked on the water. There was no doubt whether Peter believed Jesus' word because he stepped out of the boat. The other eleven in the boat heard the same words, but they trusted more in the boat than in Jesus' word to them. And Peter got out of the boat and he walked on the water. So he put his whole literal life trusting in that word where Jesus said, you can come to me on the water. He trusted him to the point that he put his life literally out on Jesus, on Jesus to do that. And when you came to Christ, that's what you did. You put your trust for your eternal well-being and destiny in his hands of what he did for you. And that's why Hebrews 3 and 4 talks about entering into God's rest because your trust is in Him. You don't have to strive to do something He's already taken care of. So to believe in your heart is not just to believe in something. It's to put your trust in something. I read a statement by Charles Finney a number of years ago, a little book I have of his, called um, uh, Power From On High, and he talked to that the reason more Christians aren't out praying for others and sharing the gospel with others is they're still unsettled about their own salvation. They're still not really trusting Jesus, their life into Jesus' hands. I'm not going to take the time to do this, but I've done this exercise sometimes before to get across what uh, Proverbs 3, 4, and 5 means when it talks about trust in the Lord with all your heart. And I've had a strong usher stand up here, and I've just leaned back on Him. And you can lean towards Him, but still be trusting in your own feet. You can, some people can really lean towards Him, but this doesn't say to lean towards Him. It says lean on Him. And there's a point in leaning back when I do that where my center of gravity goes past my feet and now my whole stability is trusted into the hands of that usher. Well, that's what you do when you come to Christ. Instead of standing on your own two feet before God, you begin to lean back and put your trust in Christ for your standing before Him. But you can't do both. You can't lean towards Him. You've got to lean on Him. And that's what this word means. Now we're going to move on to the next part of this. It says in verse um, 10, that we're to believe in our heart that God raised Him from dead. Verse 9 says, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Verse 10 says, with the heart man believes into righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now here's something where we tend to uh, in, the, in the West, especially in this day and age. And there was a lot of teaching about confession in the 90s and it was good stuff. But, but sometimes it went a little overboard and we, people got, got afraid of what they were saying. And so we threw all that out and we threw out some baby with the bathwater. We threw out some truth. Because the way you got saved was not just by what you believed in your heart, it's by what you said in your mouth. Confess that Jesus is Lord. For with the heart man believes unto salvation, and with the mouth confession is made unto excuse me, unto righteousness. With the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So there's something about the confession of our mouth that has to do with our becoming saved. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. In order to understand that, you've got to, again, confession is one of those words that in English language has kinds of meanings that the Greek words had a different, deeper meaning to. The word confess is interesting. I looked it up in, years ago when I was doing a teaching on our confession. You can leave that up there. Um, the word confess, I looked it up in an unabridged dictionary. And one of the meanings of confess was to accept as your own. Thought well, that's interesting. I've never heard it used that way. And then I realized, yes, I have. I remember when I was growing up as a boy, uh, one time one of us hit a baseball and it went through our garage window. And my mother wanted to know who did it. And I had to confess, I did it. And I realized when I confessed that, I was accepting ownership of what happened. When I confessed, I did it. I broke the window. I was acknowledging and accepting ownership for what had happened. So the word confess doesn't just mean speak words. There is an intent behind it. And here's where I get very concerned because we've turned this process of salvation into a formula where we say, all right, just say this. Will you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead? Yes. Do you confess with the mouth of Jesus? Lord, you're saved and it's not going through a ceremony it's actually doing these things that brings us to Christ it's important to understand this not to be afraid because the wonderful thing is if you're not sure you can do it if you're not sure you've done this you can do it today you can do it before you leave here you can do it when you go home it's not like you get one shot at this but we do need to understand this confession and go back to verse 9 What is it we're confessing? If you confess with your mouth... I never thought of this before. If you confess with your what? You just did that. In order to confess with your mouth, you have to open it and speak something. So part of this process requires us to declare something, to speak something. Something remember, this is not a formula. This is not a routine, it's a, it's a process. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, confession is to take ownership and accept responsibility for. Our confession is the physical expression of what our heart believes. In James chapter 2 where he talks about this, he says, you know, you may, you know, he talks about that, that, that faith without works is dead. Faith, What he means there is faith without some corresponding action as evidence of it is dead. So he says, you know, if you say to somebody that's in need, you know, go home, be warm, who, who needs food or clothing, and you have it in your means, and you say be warm, be blessed, and I'm going to pray for you, but you have the means to help them. He said, that's not love. That's just words. So your love ought to have some words, some deeds attached to it as evidence of your words, because it's very easy to say, I love you, but the real proof of it is, what do you do? What is your actions? Well, the same is true here with the Lord. It's one thing to confess with say, Oh, Jesus is Lord. In fact, we do it all the time. We call him Lord in all kinds of ways, especially in church, whether you do it all in your regular Daily life, I don't know. But we talk about the Lord all the time without even thinking what we're saying. I love the Lord. I love you, Lord. And we pray, Lord, Jesus, help us. But do we ever think what the word Lord means? What we're doing when we say that? So when we just say words, we're not making a confession. We're just making a statement. A confession has something of the heart behind the words. And what it has behind the words is a commitment. Is a commitment. And I shared with you last week, 48 years ago this last July, Anita and I stood before a minister. Neither of us were saved. I had no clue what I was doing. All I know is she was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. I would have been living 500 miles apart from her and if I did this, she could be mine. I could have her, I could love her, I could take care of her, I could be with her all the time. And I knew a little more than that. But I was scared because my parents were divorced. I didn't know that I could live a commitment out. And so that part of it scared me. But I went ahead with it anyway, and what I've learned over the process of time is what that commitment meant that I made. It meant more than I want you. It meant a giving of myself completely. And once I got saved and got into the Word of God and I saw what the Word of God says that husbands, because it says the relationship between a husband and wife is the same covenant relationship between Christ and the church. It's a covenant relationship. And if young couples or old couples getting married today understood that they they were not getting married, they were entering into a covenant, we wouldn't see the divorce rate that we see right now. Because we went, we've gone through hell and high water at different times and more than once. But what kept us together through some very difficult times was our commitment that we made 48 years ago. I remember when one of my brothers has now passed away. He'd been living with his girlfriend for a number of years. And he asked me one day, he says, why did you get married? I said, for the same reason you won't. I realized for this relationship to prosper and last, there had to be a foundation of a commitment that no matter what happened, we're going to stick together. And because you're afraid to make that commitment, it won't last. Well, he then turned around and got married. I'm not sure it was a result of what I said. Our confession is a physical expression of our heart's belief. When we speak, then notice you shall confess with your mouth the word implies a public in greek it implies a public declaration of a binding contract in this case a covenant it implies a public declaration of a binding contract can you begin to see it's not just saying words it's not just saying jesus is lord When we say Jesus is Lord for this purpose, we are submitting our lives to under His Lordship. We're making a commitment that is as binding and more binding and as submissive and as committed as the commitment I made to her 48 years ago. The public part is important. It's interesting because I got saved in our living room about one in the morning and everybody was in bed. But not long after that when we were in church and the church we belonged to at that time, they didn't believe in this stuff. They were a nice group, a nice friendly group of people and had a nice short service on Sunday morning. And then after a while we realized we weren't getting fed there. My wife realized that a lot earlier than I did. So we went to a church in the area that was clearly born again. It was, a, it was a true church and the first service were there when they gave an altar call and I had done this months before in my living room when they called people to come up forward I just knew I needed to go up there and my mind saying oh you're gonna be a big church you're gonna be embarrassed talking but all, I did it all the way up somehow my feet walked me up there because I knew I needed to be up there I don't know why it was instinctive in me I just knew I needed to do what I'd done privately I needed to be willing to do in front of people publicly so this word implies a public declaration what's public mean what's so significant about public because somehow when you do it in front of other people it makes that commitment more real i'm willing to i'm willing to side with jesus as lord i'm willing to publicly declare my allegiance to him it's not just something i'm going to do in the closet and everybody's coming out of the closet now church needs to come out of the closet (laughs) Romans, Matthew 10 let's just look there quickly Jesus talks about this a bit in some very difficult scriptures Matthew 10 Jesus is talking in these scriptures about persecution that's going to come. He talks before this about what I tell you that <clears throat> um, to speak in the light what you hear, speak it for don't be shy, speak boldly." In verse 32, he says, "Therefore whoever confesses me before men." I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. Whatever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So, in Jesus' mind, our public confession is important to him because that means I'm willing to be publicly identified with him. It also means. It also that and there's something that happens with us. We cross a line. It's like Peter stepping out of the boat onto the water. I belong to him and he belongs to me. All right. So if we're to confess Jesus as Lord, you can go back now to, to Romans 10, verse 9. If we confess Jesus as Lord, what does that mean? Well, it means we're confessing his Lordship over our lives. I've talked to you about this before. In the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, Jesus said to me, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the will of my Father? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the will of my Father? And He said, Many of you are going to say to me in that day, Lord, we did these miracles for you. We cast out demons. We raised the dead. We we performed great miracles on your behalf. And yet I'm going to say to you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So when we stand before Jesus on that day, and there will be a day when we stand before Him, He's not going to look over all you did for Him. He's not going to look over and say, you know what, I got... 3,000 people saved, I, uh, you know, I had these miracles, great, great miracle ministry, and I had this great Bible teaching, and I was a great pastor, and I was a great connect leader, and I was, a, you know, I, he's not going to, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a reward you get for that, but he's, what he's going to look at is not what you did for him, he's going to look at whether you were faithful to do what you were called to him to do. Did you do the will of my Father, not did you do good things for me? Because you can do good things for him and it's lawlessness. Lawless means I do what I want to do, even though they're good things. So to call him Lord means not just I do good things for him, it means I'm submitted to do what he wants me to do. My life no longer, he said to the Corinthians, he says, Don't you understand? Because they were struggling with their flesh. Don't you understand? Your life is not your own. Don't you understand that body that you think you own? I mean, the world today, you know, my rights over my body. Well, if that's what you think, you need to get saved. Because once you get saved, it's no longer your body. Paul says the answer is because your body becomes the temple of the Holy Ghost, it becomes a holy place where God dwells in. You need to take that in mind when you decide where you're going to take that temple. What you're going to have that temple watch. What you're going to have that temple listen to. What you're going to expose that temple to, because it's the temple of God that you're exposing to. If you're saved, it's no longer your body. In fact, he goes on to say, don't you know, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. Well, right, right? does he have to tell me that? If he's my Lord, he does. The centurion in in Matthew chapter 8, verse 5, had a tremendous grasp of this. That's why Jesus marveled at him. Jesus said, I'll come and heal your servant. And the centurion says, no, no, you don't need to come. I'm not worthy for you to come under my house. But you don't need to. All you need to do is speak the word here, and my servant will be healed over here where he is. And why do I understand that? Because I understand authority. Because I am a soldier and therefore I am under authority and I am in authority. And I recognize that you are also someone under authority and therefore in authority. And the evidence that my servants are under authority is that I say go and they go. I say come and they come, I tell my servant, do this, and he does it. This is not rocket science. It's not complicated. He said, the evidence of my authority in their life is they do what I say when I say to do it. And Jesus called that great faith. So I'm going to make this statement. You not cannot have great faith and not be under authority. I'm going to say that on this side. You cannot have great faith and not be under authority. I'm going to say that again. You cannot think you have great faith and not be submitted under a, Authority. Well, I'm under His lordship, but the evidence of your submission to His lordship is what is your attitude towards authorities God's put in your life that are human, that are representing Him for your benefit. That's the evidence, because it's easy to say, "Oh, Lord, Lord," but what do you do when someone that Lord, the, your Lord, has appointed? to help you say something and you argue with it, disagree with it or dismiss it then there's a real question of whether he's really fully Lord in my life. This is challenging stuff. It's challenging for me, it's challenging for all of us but we've got to see the truth and walk in it. Now I believe that it's a process we grow in. Just as I made a commitment to her 48 years ago And I'm still learning what that commitment means at deeper levels. In the same way I made a commitment to Him 38 years ago. And I'm still learning the depths of what that commitment that I made to Him mean. Lord, I'm submitting my life, my will, and everything to Him. Hebrews 3.1 Hebrews 3, to show you how important this confession is, that it's not just something you make one. Therefore, holy brethren and partakers of the holy calling, consider or focus on, look at, uh, put your attention on, the apostle and the high priest of what? Of our confession. Partakers of the heavenly calling, that's us. Consider, that word consider in the Greek doesn't mean think about, it means focus on. Fix your attention on the apostle, This is the messenger that goes before us, and the high priest of our confession. He goes on to say that Jesus is our high priest. He's comparing in the book of Hebrews Jesus to different things that they worshiped and respected. He starts out in chapter 1 and 2 and talks about the angels and that he's higher than the angels. And now he begins to go into a discussion here about the priest system in the Old Testament. And the first one he talks about is the high priest because the high priest was the representative that God chose to represent God to man and man back to God. In fact, in chapter 5, he talks about the qualifications, what it takes to be a high high priest, which means he has to be chosen among men to represent man to God. But he was then also representing God to the man. He was a go-between. And the Bible talks about Jesus as our intercessor. That word at its very root means a go-between, a connection on one side to the other side, makes up a gap. So Jesus is our high priest. He represents you. He ever lives, it says, to make intercession for you. He represents you before the Father. So you can't just walk in there anytime you want just because you're who you are. You can walk into the presence of God. We can worship God because He is in His place and we're in Him. Jesus is your high priest. You have a representative before the holy and righteous God 24 hours a day to plead your case. That's why at the end of chapter 4 it says he's touched with the feeling. Your high priest is touched with the feelings of your infirmities. He knows what it's like to struggle with temptation. He knows what it's like to be tired and then have to still do what's right. He knows all the we- what it's like to deal with the weaknesses, but he never sinned. That's why he can represent us as a high priest. He can understand your struggles so he can represent you to God, but he can represent God to him because he never gave in to him. The priests, the high priest in the Old Testament, they could represent the people's struggles. They know what they were like because they had them too. But they couldn't represent God to the people because they gave in to them just like the people did. They needed forgiveness just like the people did. So they offered a sacrifice for themselves as well as for the people. But Jesus offered a sacrifice for you and me, but he didn't need to offer a sacrifice for himself because he never sinned. In fact, that was the trap. You know Satan was trapped by all of that because Satan knew from the very beginning because of all this activity going on around in the heavens and things like that that this was the one that in in, in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 God announced there's going to come one there's going to come one that's born of a woman that's going to that's you're going to bruise his heel but he's going to crush your neck there's a deliverer coming so everyone that was born that looked righteous, Satan's looking at them. Maybe it's him. Maybe it's him. And I won't go through all the ones we could go through. But finally that day comes. There's angelic activity going on. There's a star that's beginning to move. Things are beginning to get into place and he realizes there's a special event coming. And now in this little manger in Bethlehem, there's this baby born and there's activity. Maybe this is the one. And as he grows and he watches him grow to about 30 years of age, he realizes this has got to be him. And then it's proven absolutely certainly because this young boy, this 30-year-old man, comes down to the Jordan River to be baptized by John the Baptist. And when he comes up out of that water, the Holy Spirit descends from heaven like a dove on him. And a voice speaks, and that settles it forever. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now the fight's on. So he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by this devil. And the devil comes to tempt him, to get him to give up his authority of who he is by doing what Adam did in the beginning. He tempts him with the same temptations. But Jesus doesn't fail. Jesus succeeds because Jesus stands on the Word and he doesn't reason himself. He doesn't argue with the devil. He just says, it is written. And don't you ever reason with the devil? Don't you ever argue with the devil? The only thing that beats him is it is written. And so from that point on, his whole scheme was to get him to destroy him to bring him into hell to to destroy him and to kill him And every time he tries to, from the very moment that Jesus proclaims who he is to his own brethren back in his hometown, and they want to throw him off the cliff, and he walks through them. Jesus walks through in protection, that divine protection. And every other time the devil tries to get him, he tries to kill him. He's not able to do it. Even the garden, when Jesus is praying, and there's this great battle going on, he's still protected, and angels come to strengthen him after that time. And now all of a sudden, that protection seems to step aside. And he's arrested. He's arrested and he's beaten and he's humiliated and they, they, they make him march out and carry that cross out and they nail him on that cross and suddenly the devil thinks I've won I've got him I've got him and God puts on him the sin of the world and because of that Satan is able to bring him down into the place of the dead because he died with sin Ah-ha. but in three days when the price is paid the Spirit of God comes down in there, and in the place of death itself, the seat of death itself, the Spirit of God brings this man alive. Again. Now, this what I'm going to tell you: the Scriptures doesn't say, but I got to believe this conversation was had. I believe that Satan objected, saying, "Wait a minute, you can't take him out of here. I have him legally here. He died in sin. He have him legally here." But there was a technicality that Satan, in his greed and avarice, overlooked. And the technicality is none of that sin was His. None of that sin was His. So here's what that means. The Spirit of God could legally bring Him alive, raise Him from the dead, bring Him out there. But when He came out of there, guess what He left? All your sin and my sin. So he could be the high priest, your high priest, and my high priest, so we can go with confidence before a holy God, because there's a priest representing you in heaven. But put that scripture back up, verse ten nine, ten nine. Excuse me, I'm sorry. That, that's good, you can have that one, but that's not it. That hold on to your confession. For the high priest, he's the high priest of our confession. That was Hebrews. Now go to Hebrews 10, verse 23. He's the high priest of our confession. Hebrews 10, 23. As a result of all the discussion that now takes place between Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 10. He says in verse 23, Let us hold fast... The confession of our hope without wavering for He who promised is faithful. That tells me there's a battle that's going on for your confession. So our confession of Christ as Lord over our life must be very important because we're told to hold fast to it. We're told to hold fast to that confession That confession of Him as our high priest. That confession of Him as our Savior, but that confession of Him as our Lord because His Lordship in our life is our protection. John Bevere wrote a book called Under Authority and it talks about the protection of being undercover. Under the cover, we talk about, you know, Psalm 91 talks about the protection of God, the wonderful promises of the protection of God, but there's a condition in the beginning. He who dwells. Not visits on Sunday morning. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High Amen. under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say, confess the Lord. He is my rock. He is my salvation. He is my God. But is dwelling under that protection. And that protection is his lordship in my life, his authority over me. Because either he's Lord in my life. Or I'm Lord in my life. Let's put it another way. Either he's king and I'm under in his kingdom, or I'm king of my own kingdom. And if I'm king of my own kingdom, I'm responsible for providing for my kingdom, protecting my kingdom, defending my kingdom. I'm responsible for my kingdom. Well, when you came to Christ, you changed kingdoms. You were transferred out of the domain, the kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of His beloved Son. So what God has is a bunch of sons in His kingdom that are trying to act as if they have their own kingdom. And that will create strife. Some of you have in your home, people living in your home that think it's their home, think it's their own kingdom, and they can do what they want to do. But you lived in our house where we paid the rent, the, the, the mortgage, we provided the heat, it was our kingdom. And you live by our rules. We were gracious, loving, gentle as we are trying to train our children and those that lived in our house to grow up in a certain way, but it was our rules because it was our house. And so the kingdom of God has many children in it that are, belong to the household of God but are trying to live their life as if it's their kingdom and they're struggling. And the devil's getting a hold of you and he's tormenting you and he's, there's, there's breaches in the defenses and the walls. Why? Because you're trying to act on your own authority instead of submitting yourself under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Well, what we're going to learn next time is what's our role in all of this. What is our role? If this is how it works, if in order to be saved, somebody has to believe something in their heart and then they have to say something with their mouth, how is it they come to believe? And that's the part that we have to play and we'll begin to look at that next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your love and your graciousness and your goodness. We thank you, Father, that your word says that that with understanding we are to get understanding And Father, we thank You that as we open Your Word together and look at Your Word together, that Your Spirit gives us understanding. And so, Father, we thank You for that. In Jesus' name, Amen.